0: So today is the third sola out of five. In the way that we are arranging it, solus Christus, it means something different than the others. If you noticed, the others are phrased in, these are Latin words, and so I'll I'll give you a big word, and then I'll explain it. The other phrases are sola, and that's what's called an ablative phrasing, as in... Now, that's a big word that just means through something or or by the way of and um the other solas have a little bit of a different phrase phrasing and they are to something so it, I if I was going to the difference is me saying I went through the drive through versus I went to the grocery store so when we get to the glory of God in sola deo de gloria um sola deo gloria to God alone is the glory. So the glory goes from us to God, as in like we send glory in worship to God. By recognizing the gospel, we send glory his way. And and when we're talking about solus Christus, we mean through Jesus. As in the only way, we, we don't just get saved to Jesus, we're saved and redeemed by him and through him and in him. And we're going to look at, at what that means a little bit today. We're talking about mainly the person... Jesus Christ. And just as the cross, the suffering of, of the cross, just as that means nothing without understanding what sin is, and you cannot understand sin without understanding the law of God, so also the cross means absolutely nothing if we don't understand the worth of the person who was on that cross. You know, every every Christian knows what a cross looks like. It's the symbol, it's the most identifying symbol of our faith that succinctly says what happened, what central event our religion, our faith is formed around. And if we don't understand who the person of Jesus is, then the cross is just a mere example of learning how to sacrifice for other people. And it just becomes this humanistic, philosophical like way that you should live your life as in Jesus died for us. And therefore we should lay our lives down as well. While that's true, it doesn't, it doesn't, allow us to understand the full truth of the worth of the cross, the worth of Jesus' sacrifice. And so my attempt here is to lay out a divine theological buffet, as it were, and if any of you are hungry, you should be able to eat this morning. My chief goal is for Jesus to be exalted in your hearts as he is, and not just as a Jesus of what you might think of him. And so we looked last week at what faith was and and how saving faith is necessary, that we're not saved. We don't come to God based on our own works. We don't come to God based on what we can do for him. And we can't come to God based on any good works, whether it's walking a little old lady across the street, even though that, that never happens anymore because this is America and we don't really walk anywhere. But, you know, it. it <laughs> whether it's baking cookies for a bake sale or volunteering at, you know, the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, none of the good things that we want to do, like, uh, you know, raking leaves for someone who's a shut-in or, you know, visiting the sick or ministering to the poor, none of that counts for anything towards our salvation at all. None of it. And we we looked extensively last week at how, all of our righteous deeds are as filth. They're just absolutely worthless in the sight of a pure God because before Christ, they're done from a heart filled with sin. And every, every secret motive of our heart is to justify ourselves or to make the claim before God that we're good when we're actually filled with sin. And so we looked at how faith, believing in the person of Jesus, is the thing that saves us. And it's not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. So it's not just that you have faith. It's not enough to say, I believe sincerely in different things. Like you can sincerely believe in communism, but it will destroy the economy that you live in. You can sincerely believe that, um, you know, that the Cincinnati Reds are the best team in baseball, but they're, they don't have the best record. You can sincerely believe, you can authentically believe things that are wrong. Okay at one time, you know we used to believe that the sun moved around the earth as a as a as a culture as as humanity around uh, you know we still talk about the sun rising and setting, but we all now have this knowledge that the sun stays fixed and we our earth moves around it, and so we can sincerely believe things and we can be sincerely wrong and so the purpose of faith is not to just believe something. It's not enough. The Bible says that the demons believe in the existence of God, and they tremble when they think of Him. And they probably think of Him often, because they're certain, and they're very aware of their punishment that is awaiting them. It's not enough to just believe in the existence of Jesus. It's not even enough to understand the doctrines of grace. That is what we've been talking about. You have to apply them by faith. But it's not just faith. It's faith in the person of Jesus. And you can't have faith in Jesus unless you know who Jesus is. And if you don't know who Jesus is, then you have to use some sort of source whether some sort of divine revelation. And as Christians, we believe that the only divine revelation given of Jesus is the word of God. And so this morning we're going to be spending an extensive amount of time in scripture, but I want to just hammer home this idea that the cross without Christ as he is, the cross only with an imagination of who Jesus is, then the cross means simply nothing. Sin is not that big of a deal. It doesn't matter the the physical suffering you could you could make a claim that someone in the history of this earth has experienced more physical pain than Jesus did in his scourging and crucifixion you could make the the claim that someone experienced more physical pain but without understanding the the person of Jesus, who he was, the union that he had with the Father from before the foundations of the world, if you don't understand that, then the spiritual pain and the agony of the wrath that was poured out on him means absolutely nothing. And so Jesus' life becomes just a mere example, and he just is relegated to being this good teacher who we look at and we are inspired by, but he, he doesn't really become you know, all that he is to us. He's not just an unexplainable birth. He's not just simply a perfect, sinless man who could complete the law better than we could. He's not simply the greatest moral teacher or just an example for us to follow. He truly is all of those things. But he's more than just those things. Those things are true, but if you just stop at those things, you won't ever understand who he is and therefore you won't ever be able to trust him to save you. Concerning his birth, he's more than just an unexplainable virgin birth. He's the child of promise. He's the fulfillment of all covenants that God has made to man. He is the fulfillment of all messianic prophecy, all of the prophets of old who have come before Jesus, John the Baptist all the way through Isaiah and before that the prophets and even the priest of Melchizedek who pointed forward to Jesus. He is the culmination and the fulfillment of all promises that God has ever given He's not only just sinless, there's no shadow in his turning. What does that mean? There's no compromise in the character of Jesus. He never holds back his you know, anger to express his love. There's no compromise in who he is. He's not confused about how he's both God and man. He, this man is unexplainable to us, but he understands himself perfectly perfectly. He's not simply the greatest moral teacher. He said in the book of John that I am the truth. Jesus Christ incarnate, he is the truth. He's living truth. His person is truth. He doesn't just know things. He's truth. Colossians 2.3, it says, All the secrets of wisdom and knowledge dwell in him. That he is the truth. He is the source of all truth. He's the source of all life. He's not just the example. He said he is the way. He's the only way. So what I want to demonstrate through scripture this morning is that Jesus is the God-man. He is perfectly human and he is perfectly divine. That is, he's perfectly God and he's perfectly man at the same time. There's no division in his character. There's no, dis, there's no uh, you know, disunity in his being. There's absolutely nothing wrong with him. He understands himself perfectly. And even though we might be confused as to how a man and God can be put together in one person to himself, he understands it perfectly. And so as we look upon him and we see him for who he is, the cross becomes larger and larger and true saving faith is possible based on looking upon this one whom we've pierced. So this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time in John 1 as well as Colossians 1. We're going to spend our time first in John 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and then verses 14 through 18. And we're only skipping the median verses just for the sake of time. It's not that they're bad verses. John 1, if you remember Genesis 1, it says in the beginning. And John 1 corresponds to Genesis 1 in the beginning. And so John is, this, is writing this gospel and he's desiring the purpose of the book of John. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe. And so the book of John is an attempt, uh, which is the divine word of God, so it's a perfect attempt to communicate the person of Jesus as he is. So, in verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. I want to explain what this idea of the word means. The word of God is, that word in the Greek is the word logos, and there's some things that, because it's not a natural word in our language, I I have to add some words together for you to get the meaning. I'm going to try to paint like a, you know, an abstract portrait of what the word logos means. But one of the things that it means is the prototype, as in it's the pinnacle of all possible existence. Another way to think of it is reason or speech, the one who gave utterance, as in through Jesus, other things were made. He's the, the pinnacle, he, he, he's the one who gave existence to all things. In Greek philosophy, the idea was that there was this divine uh, pattern or um, per, a, a really terrible way might be to think of it as like the perfect Lego block model. And by that model, all other, model, all other things are made, if that makes sense. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a weird idea because we're not very abstract in the way that we speak in English we're very physical in the way that we speak and so it's hard to understand but the word john is intentionally saying in greek philosophy the logos was was the the way that they personified god but it wasn't the gods of the greek gods of zeus and and the and the other gods and so this was the divine essence or the divine existence that gave rise to everything else. And so there's three phrases in this first verse. In the beginning that means when the beginning started is another way to phrase that. Was is the second phrase of this first part of the verse. And then the word, the word is Jesus, and this is this phrase is saying that Jesus existed at the beginning. In the beginning was Jesus. So if you read it backwards, Jesus was in the beginning, but Jesus wasn't just involved in the beginning. When the beginning began, Jesus was existing. And so Jesus existed before the first, if if you can imagine it, if you close your eyes, maybe it helps. It always helps me to think these things through. You go back to the time before God said, let there be light. Before that word was uttered, and there's nothing. There's no physical universe. There's no dimensions. God in his transcendent being just exists, and he just is. From eternity past to eternity present, there's no change in him. He has perfect joy and perfect fellowship, and there's absolutely nothing wrong. He doesn't need anything. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have perfect joy and fellowship and communion. And in that place, Jesus existed And then when God, by the word of God, spoke and light began and things proceeded from that, Jesus was already in a state of existing. And so it continues and it says, and the word was with God. Jesus was with the Father at the beginning and the word was God. Now that right there, those three ideas in the beginning, the word existed, the word was with God and the word was God. That right there, the last phrase is the the phrase that trips us up because we see that the word the prototype the the divine being the one who is the 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 one whom no better can be imagined he was with god and he was equal to god he was god both not just equal in that they were uh on the same level but they were the same existence and there's a There's no division, but they are separate. And so immediately we're just, as we think through these things, we're already touching areas where we cannot even possibly fully understand. But this is the person of Jesus. The word was with God. There was a union of relationship or fellowship. Jesus was with the Father. And the word was God describes the union of essence, position, authority, unity. So Jesus is God. Verse 2 he was in the beginning with God. That's just a summary statement or a rephrase. It, it gives the passage poetic voice. It expands it and it repeats it. Verse 3 is when we start to see who, as the person of God that Jesus is, what that entails. All things, verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That means nothing that you can imagine, nothing that you've ever seen, no one that you've ever spoken to, no one that, you know, no, no thought that you've ever thought, not, nothing that exists could exist or does exist without him causing it to exist. Jesus is the cause for all things that exist. Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. As in his existence, Jesus living is the way by which men see. It's not just the way by which we see physically, it's the way by which we see spiritually. It's it's the way that we live. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jumping to verse 14, describing this word and how we see that he is fully God, now the the unspeakable, the unthinkable happens. Every time we think about the incarnation, we should feel the ground begin to fall out from under our feet because the unimaginable has taken place. The infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everything, all, all everything, eternity incarnate, in infinity contained within his being has decided to step into human form. Verse 14, "...and the word became flesh." And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the the Baptist and, and the wise, testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now this is, right here, I have to explain in Hebrew culture your time of birth was deeply integral it was it was a part of how you showed honor how you showed respect and so when in verse 14 it says the only begotten of the father it means that the father and Jesus were equal because the son is equal to his father but at the same time in the in the Hebrew culture of the way that generations came down in time Adam had a son, and that son was like Adam, but Adam had more glory than that son. And so as we see in the Gospels, when Jesus claims to have an equality with the Father, and that that claim is what gets him in trouble with the religious system of the day, because he's saying that he came from the Father, but in the way that he came from the Father, he is equal with the Father. Verse 15 says, John is testifying about Jesus' pre-existence. That is, the person of Jesus Christ existed before he was born. That in the incarnation, he left the bosom of the Father and came to this planet. And before he came as a baby, he existed as God eternally. He didn't just show up on the scene and become conscious at one moment. He was always God And so this is what John is saying in verse 15. This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. That would be totally ludicrous for John the Baptist to say that because John the Baptist was born before Jesus. And so John saying these things, he's saying that Jesus existed before he was born. He's unlike every other person you can meet. So in our in our culture if let's say Victor and I were living in that culture just to help bring this home my brother would never speak publicly before I spoke if we were at like a wedding ceremony or or we were at like some official event because I'm the oldest son in my father's house in my in in Greg Weiss's house I'm the oldest son and so if my brother and I were together at an event, anything that we would do, he would defer to me in terms of authority or in terms of just propriety and things like that. That's, that's what it meant in their culture for someone who comes before you to have greater honor or glory. And so John the Baptist is making the claim initially from the start of Jesus's ministry that Jesus is fully God because he existed before I did. Verse 16, for of his fullness, we all have received and grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You see, God in his grace gave his people the law, as in he told them what exactly they should do. But at the time of giving the law, the grace to complete the law was was not given. And so here in verse 17, Jesus, John, the the gospel writer here is describing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of our desire to complete the law. But not only that, he is the way and he is the only one who will do that. Continuing on verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. This verse, verse 18, is violently offensive in the light of our politically correct culture. We have other religions in the world today which our American culture says in the name of tolerance that we value their claim of understanding faith or understanding deity. And what this verse is saying is that no person has ever seen God. It's not just talking about with their eyes. But no one has ever understood God except for the person of Jesus. And Jesus coming and demonstrating by his life, death, and resurrection, he demonstrated who God is. And so this verse is violently offensive. And the book of John is often considered to be the most offensive book in the Bible because, as we'll look at later, Jesus says that you can't come to me unless the Father draws you those who know about God come to Jesus. And so if you don't come to Jesus, what Jesus is saying by this, these words is that you don't know God. This claim is totally authoritarian. This is, we, in, our, in our rebellious culture, we hate this. And so Jesus leaves you no option. He says that the only way to salvation is through him, the God-man. I'm not going to preach through this, but in the first five centuries of the church, there was a dispute that arose, and there was some heretical claims that Jesus was not fully divine, but rather he was a man, and godness came onto him. Okay? So the, the heresy was that Jesus wasn't fully divine, that he was just a good man, and by his example of completing the law perfectly for a certain amount of time, then Godness came on him. And, you know, so the church responded and said, that's, you know, hogwash and completely foolish. And they created a concise summary, which helps us to understand the deity of Jesus and the humanity being completely unified. And so just as we said the Nicene Creed this morning, This symbol of Chalcedon, Chalcedon, or another way to say it is the Chalcedonian Creed, is a concise statement that the church has uh, come up with to explain the person of Jesus. And this is a very old piece of uh, literature. This was written in 451 AD, so it's been used by the church for more than 1,500 years. And this is actually just a portion of a larger document, but anyway... I'm not going to preach through this. I'm just going to read it and help us with the big words. They are respond these, these group of, of Christian leaders, these men who are defending the faith are saying, we following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul. Rational just means real. A rational soul and body consubstantial means of the same substance. Con means with and substantial just means substance or, you know, stuff that you're made of consubstantial with the father as regards with his divinity and consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects, except for sin, Begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us, and for our salvation from Mary, the Virgin God bearer, as regards his humanity. It continues One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the two natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together in a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us and as the creed of the fathers handed down. So they're not expanding. They're expanding on the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed, but they're not changing, okay? This isn't a modification of the religion. This is a more explicit statement by, the, by which we can understand who Jesus is. Now, obviously, these things are made up of Scripture, but it's one really, really concise, good way to explain the person of Jesus. As I promised, we would be in Colossians 1, we're gonna look just at, at what is going on that now now who we be now that we begin to see Jesus and, and we see who He is as as God and as man, we now have to understand just what what happened and how it happened. And so Colossians one thirteen through twenty, verse thirteen, the first word he is describing the Father. Okay, and then, after that, once we get out of verse thirteen, all the other he's are describing jesus and 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 you'll see that for he the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The rest of this passage is now talking about Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 15 says, it's describing his personhood. That is, Jesus is the firstborn. Again, you have to understand Hebrew culture to understand the scriptures because the firstborn in a in a house, just as we said earlier that um, my brother and I have a different relationship in Hebrew culture in that I was the firstborn son and my brother was the secondborn son. And so the way that that works, I would inherit the majority share of my father's um, you know, assets when he decided to pass down the inheritance. Now, we in our culture, we wait until you die to pass down the inheritance most of the time, although it's not always necessary that somebody dies for inheritance. But in that culture, when, when, our, when, when my dad, my Greg, would decide to uh, pass down the inheritance, I would receive the majority share because of my position of honor in the way that they set up their family structure. And so when when this verse is saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it's saying that he owns everything. He owns everything in the universe. Jesus Christ has a claim on every person, on every inch of this earth, on every star, galaxy, planet, soul, you know, s- solar system, on every on every period of time, on every kingdom, in every economy. Jesus Christ owns it all. He is the firstborn of all creation. Everything was created through him and for him, and either to him it will return or to destruction if it continues in rebellion against him. And so Jesus has an authoritarian claim on your life. There is a title deed that exists in the spirit that says John Weiss, and the owner of that title deed is Jesus Christ. And he owns me. And if I rebel against him, as in I do not come and repent and trust in him and submit myself to his lordship, then I don't enter into saving faith. And because he owns it, he has a claim. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What, what that means is that Jesus Christ, by the word of his power, it says other words, other other places in scripture, by the word of his power, Jesus can currently holds everything together. The subatomic realities that we have not even examined that live down beneath the electrons and the protons. And even beyond that, the quarks and the, I don't even, lemons, whatever they're called. He, Jesus Christ currently holds those things together. All things, not just, not just physical things, but societal things and universal things, the solar system, gravity, all physical laws, all properties of human behavior, all, all laws of spiritual existence, the, the, the physical universe, the, the visible things and the invisible things, they're all held together by the person of Jesus. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, that is, all the fullness of deity, to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." It's my chief goal this morning to help us understand that the cross of Christ means absolutely nothing if we don't have an opinion that is is accurate of who he is. If we don't have an understanding of who Jesus is as the owner of everything, the creator of everything, that by him and through him and to him all things were made, if, if we don't understand that, then there's no way to have saving faith because the cross is meaningless without understanding that. And when we see that, and when we see that it required his death, our sin becomes larger and larger. It's not just a problem of behavior. Our sin is not just a problem of whether we agree with Scripture or not. Our sin is is the deepest, darkest thing that we can imagine. It required the death of God to allow you to be able to be born again that is, to have the sin removed from your heart and a new heart of flesh and a new spirit put in you, that was accomplished through the physical and spiritual suffering of Jesus Christ. And without understanding that Jesus is God, sin isn't that big of a deal. It's just why society's falling apart. It's just why you can't get good grades. It's just why your parents aren't happy with you. That's what sin is. If you don't understand how big the payment was, there's a there's a philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche who has this has two concepts which, which reinterpreted, can be really good. His idea is that God died. And that's really true. Jesus was God and Jesus died for your sins to remove the penalty of wrath. Jesus isn't just deity, but through the cross, he also is the wrath remover. He removes the wrath of God, which currently resides on those who do not trust in him and those who do trust in him by faith. His work is applied to them and the wrath is removed from them. Jesus is not just deity, he's also the redeemer. So the cross of Christ, when we understand slightly who was on the cross, then we begin to see the glory of God on display. We're deeply, extravagantly grieved at the weight of our own sin. When we begin to see Jesus for who he is, we, we begin to respond to the love of God and we accept the offer, offer of forgiveness through his blood. The fact that Jesus died indicates the nature of your problem. I was in the dentist's office this week, and they um, this is the first time I've ever had a cavity. I actually, I, I'm not sure if I had a cavity or not. They said I had a sp- soft spot, but I, I got to thinking about it later on in the week, and you know, they didn't remove the tooth. They just took some stuff out of it and put some more stuff back in it, and that described the nature, the, the nature of the solution. Let me know the severity of the problem. Okay. If they would have drilled into my tooth and removed it completely, it's called a root canal where they go and they drill through bone to get to your nerve. And I mean, it's, that's terrible. There's blood every, I mean it, I, please brush your teeth. Don't ever get a root canal, but a root canal is done because the root of the tooth is infected to the core. And the new birth, which was purchased by Jesus, helps us understand the nature of the problem. That we were filled with sin to the core. We, It, it wasn't just that we had this problem of behavior, it's who we were as people. That when Adam sinned, we all were lost completely without any chance of redemption, apart from the work of Jesus being displayed. And so, the The solution to your problem helps you understand the nature of the problem. And thank the Lord I only had a few fillings. But, you know, if it would have been something else like gangrene, You know what happens in gangrene? Most of us, we don't ever see gangrene. But gangrene is is where there's an infection that's a living infection, that as your body is repairing itself, this infection is so dark and deep that it's using the things that your body is trying to repair itself with as fuel to spread the infection. And so when, when they catch gangrene, they cut the limb off many, many inches beyond where you see an infection because the infection is deep and it's total and it's to the core, and that's what sin is. It's not just a problem, it's total corruption. And so the new birth, Jesus is purchasing that possibility through the cross, taking the payment for our sins. That helps us understand the depth of our sin. The weight of our sin required the death of God, and the Father didn't die, but the Son did. And to understand that from all eternity, Jesus and the Father had perfect fellowship and union, The only way to possibly understand that, I feel, is other than an an amazing revelation through Scripture and the Spirit opening that up to your heart, is possibly to lose a child after you've given birth to one. I'm not a parent, but I can't even imagine the pain of knowing that your child has died before you died. That's something that's terrible. It's the result of sin in this world. But in some way, if you were ever able to experience that, that that would be that would just give you a, a sliver of an understanding that the eternal God and the eternal Son, the Father and the Son lived forever, and at some point in creation the Son left the Father, did his will on the cross, and that will caused a separation between the Father and the Son. And Jesus died. It doesn't mean anything to just say Jesus died because we're Americans and most of us understand who Jesus was and we understand what the cross is about, but if we don't see that Jesus is deity, it doesn't make any sense. So through Christ alone, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time the only person through whom we can be reconciled to God is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught this. He was not confused about it at all. This was the message that he came to preach. John 6, verse 44 through 47, you don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Jesus is teaching and he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be, all be taught of God. The, to help you with the translation, you could, you could say, and they shall all be taught by God, as in Jesus here is teaching. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. It's only through Christ. He's the only way. You can't pray your way into heaven. You cannot read your Bible into heaven. You can't do any of those things. It's simply by trusting and believing that Jesus is the one who paid our penalty and is the one who offers us this free redemption. Jesus Christ is not just a fact. He's a person who did something, who now extends his hand toward you, And says, if you would believe in me and trust me for your life, I can save you. So my plea with you this morning is that you would turn to him. That you would see him for who he is, look upon the cross, see that it's totally paid, it's totally done. And that you would put your trust in him and that you would give him the rest of your life. I'm not going to have an altar call time but I I severely urge you that there is no one to save you other than Jesus. It is not by your own work. It's not by your own deeds. It's not even by you doing good works after you become a Christian that you're saved. It's only through trust and faith upon his work. And if you believe in him, according to John 6, you'll have eternal life. And the heavens will be open to you and you'll begin to understand who he is. And you'll start to feel the joy of God. But before you do that, if you don't believe in the Son, it says the, the wrath of God remains on you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we are just stunned, Jesus, that you are perfect in beauty. You're perfect in deity. There's no there's no sin in you. There was never a moment on this earth or after you left this earth in which you compromised anything. You had perfect knowledge. You are truth. You, all of the fullness of deity dwells in you in bodily form. We can't even understand these things unless you reveal it to our spirits. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Father, take simple, weak words of mine and communicate them to be life to those who hear. And Father, we just thank you again that you sent your son, that you who were unwilling to reserve your son, that you will also freely give us all things, all joy and peace in believing. God, we just are, are stunned. We thank you for your love. Who are we that we should have been the object of your affection? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.